The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Creator God, we're grateful to be in this space with people who love you and who are seeking you as you have sought us. And God, I I would just pray that you would continue to open our eyes and our hearts to who you are and what you're doing. Lord, that you would give us um, the ability to see your love at work in our family, our friends, our workplaces, our schools, and how we can join with you in all that you are doing. And Lord, we would ask that you would make us a people of deep and abounding love for the things that you love. And toward that end, God, I pray that you pour through me the gift of teaching. Let everything said here be from you and because of you and guiding us toward you as we partner with you to bring about your preferred future for all of creation. And we ask these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, Well, it's good to see you, and it's always great um, to be at our Westside campus. I I noticed that you tried last week have a potluck without me. Uh, that I was downtown at the downtown campus, and you decided that was a good time to have a party. So I am here this week to collect. Um, but it's great. I was able to make it out and to spend some time uh, with you all last week. And uh, I'm just overwhelmed with everything that God is doing um, through Ecclesia, through this campus, through you, and am delighted that we get to share life together. So I wanted you to think for just a minute, uh, if you can go back, for some of us it's a little bit farther back than it is for others, but what is it that you wanted to be when you were a kid? Or or maybe who did you want to be when you were a kid? Like what did you aspire to? So when I was a kid growing up in southern Mississippi, um, my hero was this guy, Dale Murphy. And Dale Murphy played right field for the Atlanta Braves. And when you're a kid in Mississippi, uh, the only baseball teams available to you um, are the Braves or the Cubs. And that's because of the Superstation, TBS. And my family was just eat up with baseball. My mom has always been a huge Atlanta Braves fan, still is to this day, like our lives were baseball. And the most important person to me outside of my family and my church when I was a kid was Dale Murphy. Dale Murphy won the National League MVP. Um, He won the Silver Slugger Award, which is the best hitter at his position for four years in a row. He won the Golden Glove five years in a row. And I wanted to be like Dale Murphy when I grew up. Um, I wanted to hit fourth in the lineup, just like Dale Murphy. I wanted to wear the number three, just like Dale Murphy. But the league that I played in, like, we were broke, right? So we didn't get new uniforms every year. We just got, like, handed down uniforms. And I promise you, whatever kid was older than me also wanted to be like Dale Murphy, because by the time that I got that uniform, the number three was gone. And I thought when I grew up that I would be like Dale Murphy. I wanted to play baseball, and I knew that when I was an adult, I would play baseball. And it wasn't just a pipe dream. Um, I was really good, and the teams we were on were really good. 
we won state championships. We played in tournaments with other teams from different states in tournaments. And we would always win, or we'd win most of the time, enough time that we knew that we were pretty good. And a lot of the guys who I played sports with as a kid actually grew up and became professional athletes. There's, a, there's one guy on our team, his name's Terrell Buckley. He won a Super Bowl with the Green Bay Packers. And I was better than him. So it wasn't just like a, it wasn't just a dream. Like these things we thought were attainable. But I had this experience when I was in the fourth or fifth grade, listening to my dad talk to our other coach, a guy who lived down the street. His son was my best friend. Our other coach, his name was Wayne. And my dad was explaining to Wayne, he said, as good as our kids are, as great and athletic as some of them are, There are so many kids, so many boys playing sports in America that even the best one of them only has a one in 1,000 chance of playing professional sports. And y'all, I was crushed. Like he might as well have said it was a one in a million chance. Have you had that experience ever where you had to deal with the fact that you weren't going to be, you weren't going to become what you thought you were going to become? You weren't going to be who you thought you were going to be? Like maybe you were a great actor or singer or writer, or musician, and you were really great in your school or in your town, and maybe you went off to college to audition for something, and you walked into a room, and there were a lot of other people in that room who were good or better than you, that you went off to the big city to try that thing, and you realized, oh, I've got some skills, but I'm not that. Or maybe you went out and you started your own business. Or you got your degree. Or you went and did that thing and you came crashing into the reality. I am not going to become this thing that I've always dreamed of becoming. And everybody at some point has that experience. And it's even worse when that becomes spiritualized. So at 19 years old, I heard the story of a man named Bill Wilson. And there are two really important Bill Wilsons. One is the guy who started, who created Alcoholics Anonymous, but it wasn't his story that I heard. It was this other Bill Wilson. Uh, This Bill Wilson was abandoned by his mother on a street corner in Florida when he was 12 years old. And after three days of standing on that street corner waiting for her to come, Uh, He was picked up. He was found by a Christian businessman who took him and connected him with his church and got him fed. And it happened to be in the summer, so they sent him off to this Christian camp. And it was at that Christian camp that Bill Wilson, for the first time in his life, heard the story of Jesus. And he decided after hearing that, that that's what he wanted to do with his life. He wanted to give all of his life, his whole vocation, um, to Jesus. 
And so that's what he did. People took care of him when he was in high school. He went to college and then seminary. He left Florida, moved to New York, and went to Brooklyn and started working um, with inner city kids who were um, on, living on the street. And he started what we think is the first bus ministry in America. And, and that developed into working with homeless and the drug addicted. He started a church in Brooklyn. And when I was 19 and heard the story of Bill Wilson, I thought, that's it. Like, that's, that's what following Jesus is supposed to look like. That's how you do it. But then I had another reality. I'm not Bill Wilson. I don't have the same interest as Bill Wilson. I don't have the same skills, the same gifts, the same story. And I don't want to live in Brooklyn. I really believe that most of us want to do something meaningful and unique and beautiful with our lives, that we really want our lives to matter, and we have dreams about what that would look like, or maybe we had dreams of what that would look like. And then one day we woke up with the lives that we have. We woke up to lives of sitting in traffic and going to meetings that could have been an email. We woke up to laundry and sick kids and all the other little mundane things of life. And there are always needs. She needs this and he needs that. You got kids who need backpacks and school supplies and shoes and more shoes and more shoes. I have two daughters and for 15 years, it's been tennis shoes and soccer shoes, and ballet shoes, and jazz shoes, and tap shoes. And the girls need their own shoes too. <laughs> That's what we do. You wake up, and this is the life that you have. And yeah, the life that you have, a lot of that is the the result of your choices. Like, like you chose to go to school there, you chose to marry that person, you chose to have these kids. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. But there's a, there's a part of us that feels like because it didn't turn out, because it doesn't look the way that we thought it should look or it was going to look. And we feel second rate or second class or like sellouts. And if you've ever felt that way, I want to introduce you to one of my friends, and her name is Therese of Lisieux. 
So Ecclesia, over the next month or so, Pastor Chris and I are going to walk you through some very meaningful people in the history of the church, people who have been meaningful to us personally, but more than that, people who are meaningful to who we are as a people, who we are as a church. And hopefully that will ignite an imagination for all of us of, of what we are when we are together, when we are the church gathered, and when we are the church scattered. And one of those people for me has been Therese of Lisieux. And she has an incredibly weird, beautiful, odd life. First of all, Teresa's parents are unlike most people's parents. Her father wanted to be a monk, and her mother dreamt of being a saint. But neither one of those things happened for either one of them, so they ended up marrying each other, but they felt very deeply called to this vocation. So after they were married, they did not consummate the marriage at all. Until their priest told them, that's not really how marriage works. And so to make up for lost time, over the next 15 years, Therese, Teresa's parents had nine kids in 15 years. But in that time, over the course of five years, they lost five children, the five immediately before their final child, who was Therese of Lisieux. And even when Therese was born, she was born very weak and sick. She spent the first couple years of her life sick. She almost died and she recovered, but still lived the rest of her life very weak. And by the time that Therese was four years old, her mother died of breast cancer. And even with all of the tragedy in her life, by the time that she's an adult and sits back and reflects on her childhood, she says that her childhood was enveloped, her childhood was wrapped in love. And so Teresa's sisters, her older sisters, had gone off and become Carmelite nuns. And because of some experiences that she had as a child, Teresa decided that she wanted to devote her life to God and devote her life to the church. So she would become a nun too. So she appealed to the church to let her enter the convent. And they said, no, you can't enter the convent. You're too young. So she took it to the next level. And they said, you're too young. And she went to the next level, and they said, you're too young, on and on, until she appealed in person to the Pope, and the Pope said, you're too young. <laughs> but after seeing how distraught, how overcome with emotion she was about being rejected, they decided that they would let her enter into the convent early which is what she did. Now, what you need to know is that Therese becomes a Carmelite nun, and she lives in, um, the word just totally slipped my mind, cloistered. Carmelite and cloistered. I was remembering those because they both started with C's, and it just totally left me. Um, she becomes a Carmelite nun in a cloistered community. And cloistered means that she's not going anywhere. Like, she's going to live inside that convent for the rest of her life. And this becomes a source of frustration for Therese. Because she's like you, and she's like me. She wants to do something 
unique and beautiful and meaningful with her life. But now she's cloistered inside this convent. She wants to do something, but this, this is the life she has. So one day as she's writing in her journal, she confesses this. She says, I feel within me other vocations. I want to do something else. I feel the vocation of the warrior, the priest, the apostle, the doctor, the martyr. I feel the need and the desire of carrying out the most heroic deeds for you. And this is what I love about Therese. Like, she's the original queen of the caps lock. Like, I didn't make that up. That's how she wrote them. But I want to do something else. Like, I feel this desire to do something great with my life. But this is the life that I have. And what are you supposed to do when you wake up with a head full of dreams and a house full of runny noses? Well, one afternoon as she's reading through her Bible, Therese comes across these words from the Apostle Paul, and Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and he says this. He says, each believer has received a gift that manifests the Spirit's power and presence. Each believer. That's everyone. Everyone has received a gift that manifests the Spirit's power, and presence. So let me, let me ask you this. Are you included in everyone? Who is excluded from everyone? Paul says each believer has a gift. And it's not just any old gift. It's not just this thing. It's this thing that manifests, that makes real the power and presence of the Spirit. In the fuller argument, Paul says this, says each believer has received a gift that manifests the Spirit's power and presence. That gift is given for the good of the whole community. The Spirit gives one person a word of wisdom, but to the next person, the same Spirit gives a word of knowledge. Another will receive the gift of faith by the same Spirit, and still another gifts of healing, all from the one Spirit. One person is enabled by the Spirit to perform miracles, another to prophecy, while another is enabled to distinguish those prophetic spirits. The next one speaks in various kinds of unknown languages, while another is able to interpret those languages. One spirit works all these things in each of them individually as he sees fit. Just as a body is one whole made up of many different parts, 
and all the different parts comprise the one body, so it is with the anointed one. So Paul says, you, you guys need to listen, 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 gather around. And Paul says, everybody here has a gift. And that gift is for the whole community. Paul says, you, right where you are, with everything that you are, have a gift for the whole community. And those gifts are really different and all necessary. And that's why, Ecclesia, we really believe in this thing that people call the priesthood of all believers. That there's no one here that is more valued and more valuable than anyone else here. That everybody has a gift to bring. And if you don't, if I don't bring my gifts, you don't bring your gifts, that is a gift the community does not have. That it takes all of us each bringing our own gifts. So last week, when Chris was here, he talked with you about this idea of what the church is and, and that you can't go to church, that people are the church. And the, the Christian tradition that I was raised in, we took this very seriously. Like the idea in the churches that I was raised in that you would go to church, that idea was actually kind of ludicrous to us. To ask somebody, where do you go to church, would be like asking somebody, where do you go to family? because we deeply believe that the people, people are the church. We even had language around this. Like if you had to drop off your teenager for youth group or you were going to work at the potluck or whatever it else is, we would never say, we would never say, I was going to church. We would say things like, I'm gonna go up to the building because we knew that that's a building and we are the church. And here's what you need to know. Because we are the church, we can't do without you. That you have a gift for the body. Now, you may not know what your gift is yet. You may not like your gift. You may want a different gift but you have a gift. And the problem comes when we decide, you know what, I don't like my gift. I want his gift, I want her gift, I want that gift because that seems to pay more money. And that was Teresa's problem. She didn't know her gift. And Paul goes on, 1 Corinthians, and this is what she read. Paul says, what if I speak in the most elegant languages of people or the exotic languages of the heavenly messengers, but I live without love? Well, then anything I say is like the clanging of brass or a crashing cymbal. What if I have the gift of prophecy and blessed with knowledge and insight to all the mysteries? Or what if my faith is strong enough to scoop a mountain from its bedrock, yet I live without love? If so, I am nothing. 
I could give all that I have to feed the poor. I could surrender my body to be burned as a martyr. But if I do not live in love, I gain nothing by my selfless acts. And what Paul says, you don't have to like your gift. You don't have to know what your gift is. You, you, you may not have discovered what your gift is. You may want someone else's gift. But the gifts don't matter as much as it matters to love. And it actually doesn't matter what your gift is if you don't love. And Therese, as she's reading this, comes to a realization, and this is what she writes in her journal. She says, I finally had rest. I understood that if the church has a body composed of different members, the most necessary and most noble of all could not be lacking to it. And so I understood that the church had a heart and that this heart is burning with love. My vocation is love. Teresa says, my job is love which sounds very romantic and, and like there should be some sort of orchestral score that comes up behind it. But that's not what it meant for Therese. What it meant for Therese is that she did all of the jobs in the convent that no one else wanted to do. She cleaned the kitchen. She cleaned the bathroom. She ate last or ate the leftovers and the things that people didn't want. She did the laundry. There came a time when Teresa's older sister was about to be named Prioris of the convent, the head of the convent. But because Therese was there and her older sister was there and her two other older sisters were all in the same convent, the other nuns got really nervous about that much power and influence being held by one family. And so Teresa's older sister came to her at the time where Therese was to make the transition from being a novice to a full nun and asked her if she would remain a novice. Not for a few weeks, not for a few months, but for the rest of her life. And she said yes. Now, now here's the thing you need to know about Teresa Lassoux. She didn't really want to be a nun. What she wanted was to be a priest. And if she had been born a different gender, she would have been a priest. And so becoming a nun had already been a concession from her dreams. And now, she wasn't even going to become that. This is what Therese wrote in her journal. She says, miss no opportunity of making some small sacrifice here by a smiling look, there by a kindly word, 
always doing the smallest right and doing it all for love. Teresa of Lisieux decided to give her entire life to doing acts of love, regardless of what they cost her, regardless of what it meant. That in each interaction, at each moment, to do the most loving thing that she could think of. And her fellow nuns started to call Teresa's way of being in the world the little way. The little way of choosing to do the loving thing in every interaction. And here's the thing about your life. You will have opportunities to do big things. Go to Colombia, go to Venezuela, go to Mexico. But every day, you will have a multitude of opportunities to practice the little way. The little way of letting the car in ahead of you. The little way of doing the chores when it's not your turn. The little way of not having to have the last word. The little way of not complaining about what's for dinner. The little way of eating last. The little way of staying quiet in that meeting. The little way of driving the kids all over town with a smile. The little way of not expecting a thank you. You will have a multitude of opportunities to love. Well, Teresa of Lisieux got sick when she was 23, and she died when she was 24, and spent the last year of her life in bed writing, and she considered it an honor, a privilege, to die at 24 years old. She called it one of the graces of God because had she been born a boy at 24 years old is the time that she would have been made a priest. And she said it was God's grace to her to not live a life of frustration. And after she died, her older sister took her journals and some of her writings and bound them all together and sent them out to convents. And it became this book, The Story of a Soul. And years later, The Story of a Soul found its way into the hands of a woman named Dorothy Day, who built her life, her teachings, her ministry from The Story of a Soul. And after that, that same little book found its way into the hands 
of Mother Teresa of Calcutta, who built her life and ministry from the story of a soul. It was Mother Teresa who said, we cannot do great things, but only small things with great love. 28 years after Teresa of Lisieux died, she was made a saint of the church. Not long after that, both her mother and father were made saints of the church. And 50 years after she died, she was named a doctor, the highest office. She was named a doctor of the church, one of only four women who are doctors of the church. Teresa of Lisieux wanted to do something big and heroic with her life. And she chose to do that by simple, everyday acts of love. And in the end, impacted the world more than she could ask or imagine. For her, and her parents both became all they ever wanted and more. So here's the challenge for us. How do we today, in these lives that we have, become the kind of people who do everything for love. To practice the little way of love in small, everyday things. And my guess is that when we do, God will give us more than we ever dreamed. Ecclesia, let me pray for you. God, would you give us eyes to see the ways to love that are in front of us every day? The places that we, God, ignore in our busyness, in our selfishness, in our loudness, in our desire for all the things that don't draw us to you. May we be overwhelmed with love. God, love for you and the world that you are creating and our place in it, that you would center us in the middle of your will and use our lives to bless the world. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.